0: If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at Soundbites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis.
1: My name is Shiva Mosevarian, and today we're back with guest moderator Jason Harris, Vice President of Government Relations and Advocacy here at NPF, to discuss biosimilars from why they are important to the treatment of immune-mediated and autoimmune diseases, access, and cost. Joining Jason to offer their perspectives on use of biosimilars is dermatologist Dr. Colby Evans, past chair of the NPF board and member of the International Psoriasis Council, along with Anna Hyde, vice president of the Advocacy and Access Department of the Arthritis Foundation, whose goal is to increase access to healthcare and provide opportunities for engagement and advocacy for all people with arthritis, which includes development of policies to reduce barriers to care to make healthcare accessible and affordable. Welcome, and thank you all so much for being here today for our discussion about biosimilars. Jason, if you'd like to start the discussion.
2: Thank you, Shiva, and thank you, Dr. Evans and Anna, for being here. Dr. Evans, the last time I'm going to call you doctor, we're going to refer to you as Colby moving forward. Let's go ahead and get right in. So a lot of things to discuss as it relates to biosimilars. It's a large topic of conversation throughout our two communities, Anna and Colby. And so I want to start with some level
3: setting. So Colby, let's just start with what is a biosimilar? So a biosimilar is a medication that attempts to be as similar as possible to a biologic medicine that's already on the market. We sometimes call that one that's already on the market a reference drug and sometimes people want to think of it as a generic version of a biologic, but that really isn't accurate. When you have a generic drug, like if you think about aspirin, a generic or a brand name will literally be exactly the same molecularly, no different at all. If you wanted an analogy, an aspirin, if you think of that as complicated as a bicycle, then a biosimilar is as complicated as the space shuttle. It is orders of magnitude more complex, And there is no way to make an exact replica of, say, adalimumab or Humira. Even particular batches of Humira are not the same from batch to batch coming out of the factory. So there would be no way to make an exact replica like a generic. So instead, we're creating a drug that is as close as we can make it to the original and has similar therapeutic effects and similar side effects. Excellent. Thank you. And just a quick follow-up. So, why even are we making them? I think the main reason is to create competition in the space and to have them be less expensive. We all know that biologics are very expensive medications, and that does limit their availability in the U.S. and around the world. So, the hope is, and this part maybe is more analogous to generics, that by allowing more manufacturers, once the drug is off patent, to manufacture them, that it will eventually lower the price. Awesome.
2: And so, Anna, why are we having this discussion now, right? Why are biosimilars gaining importance in the treatment of immune-mediated and autoimmune diseases?
4: Well, it seems to me that it was a little bit of a trickle of a conversation for several years because the first biosimilars for these conditions were approved in twenty. I believe, starting 2014, 2015 in in that zone. And biosimilar for Remicade did come to market fairly shortly thereafter. So there have been biosimilars on the market for the last few years. However, the reason it's become a flood now is because the first self-administered biosimilar has come to market. And that's for the reference product Humira, which is a very familiar drug to many people. Uh, And this could really be a game changer because Humira is a, a widely utilized medication. And so having a suite of biosimilars that are now an option for people with these conditions could be a real game changer and much bigger slice of the population than we had before.
2: All right. Thank you. So things are pertinent now. The timing is here for biosimilars. We know there are at least Six on the market now for Adalimumab Humira. And that again, as Anna was, was saying, is why we're here today to talk through it more. Colby, you mentioned before the batch to batch and how these products are made, whether it's a biologic or a biosimilar. I wanted just to reiterate that point. Could you walk us through what that process even looks like and your perspective on that?
3: Sure, developing a biosimilar is different than developing a new drug because of course the reference drug already exists. So the first step is to analyze it chemically and try to come up with a process to create something that is very similar. And that's complicated. The factories that produce these drugs are enormous. They have clean rooms. They can cost a billion dollars to create because they're so complex. Once you have the factory, then you have bacteria or other engineered organisms that can create these proteins and you try to get the protein as similar as you can to the reference drug. And that process is kind of an inverse of the way normal drugs are developed. Normally, you you start with the molecule and then you do a whole bunch of clinical testing to see that it works and is safe. In biosimilars, you do a lot of chemistry at the beginning to try to figure out a way to replicate the molecule as closely as possible. And then there is much less clinical testing, just enough to show that it's similar to the reference drug.
2: Thank you for that. Anna. I know we've discussed on months ago in terms of looking at what's happened abroad as it relates to biosimilars, especially for our communities. And I wanted to just let you expand on that. What does it look like abroad and what can we learn from that or or what have we learned from that?
4: Sure. So there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is that there are other therapeutic areas that have gotten a lot further in terms of utilization, oncology chief among them, but then also in Europe where Humira went off patent and biosimilars were able to come onto market starting in 2019. So there's several years ahead of us and therefore have millions of treatment days. And just that term millions just is kind of mind boggling to me. But what that means is that there's a lot of real world evidence to see have there been any issues with transitioning to an adalimumab biosimilar, for example. And the data that's come out so far suggests, no, there are no issues. There really aren't safety signals. And most people have had a pretty seamless transition. Those who have transitioned, of course, with the biosimilar being available here since January, at least for one of those biosimilars that you mentioned, there are several now on market. We have treatment days here too, to glean from, but just not as many as in Europe and, and other countries. And places around the world.
2: Yeah, I think that's one thing I always am astounded at when we think about it here is that it has been done before. There are those real world examples, as you said. And so I think that's just important for all of us to keep in mind. Okay, we kind of have done the level setting. I'm going to shift this to your individual perspectives as you think about the first times that biosimilars came into your lives. So I'm gonna have to roll back the time here a little bit. Colby, why don't we start with you first? What was your initial reaction when you heard about biosimilars and their potential promise?
3: I think I had a mixed initial reaction. I was certainly excited about the idea that these drugs could become more widely available and less expensive, but like many physicians, I had questions about the level of efficacy and safety that we would see. Could you really create something that would be as effective and similar in terms of side effects? And Over time, my understanding has evolved as they've been studied more and more of them have come onto the market. And I think, in a way, I've sort of flipped what I was concerned about. I think that now we have strong evidence, as Anna just indicated, that biosimilars do have similar efficacy. They do have similar relief for the patient and the side effects and safety profiles are similar to the reference drugs. But that early promise of substantially reduced cost and more availability so far in the U.S. has not shown as much promise as it has in Europe.
2: Okay, so Anna, as a policy expert, what were some of your first reactions when this issue came onto your desk?
4: Well, interestingly, this issue came upon my desk just a few months before the first biosimilar was approved in the U.S., and at that time, all of the buzz was around FDA guidances, naming conventions, are they going to have unique names or the same names? And is that going to make tracking more difficult? Pharmacovigilance was a word that was used a lot in my conversations at that time. So it's, it's been interesting to see the evolution in that time. I think now people have been hanging their hat on that concept of the promise of biosimilars and lowering costs. That certainly was something that we were thinking about at that time too. And similarly, I am concerned about what that trickle down really looks like and whether patients are going to see the overall cost savings to them.
2: So Anna, I'm going to stick with you. The Arthritis Foundation has done a ton of survey work asking folks in your community about their perspectives. Who do they want? How do they want to be informed if they are going to be moved to a biosimilar or just in general, how do they feel about it? I'm curious if you could share some of those perspectives and learnings that y'all have gathered.
4: We have certainly done a lot of work here, had a lot of conversations with patients and continue to do so. I've had a lot of aha moments in that time, and several of them that I think are worth mentioning are that a lot of the patients that we work with have just basic practical questions about how biosimilars will impact their life. They basically want to know, how is my life going to be different? that means is the injection device different the route of administration is there going to be copay assistance is it citrate free not a question that i as a policy person would have thought of so that's one of the really interesting takeaways from polling our our patient community so they basically just want to know that is it going to be a seamless transition if i am going to transition to a biosimilar i think there's also a fear factor that cannot be overlooked or overstated by all stakeholders. I think this is a real important call to action to anyone who has a touch point with patients around biosimilars. There's a fear of change. I'm sure Colby has a lot to say about this based on his experiences, but patients, oftentimes when they find a drug that works well for them, they they call it their miracle drug. I've heard that term so many times. And once they get on that, even if you tell them this biosimilar is clinically the same, they still are going to be a little fearful of changing. They still see it as a switch. There's an emotional and psychological component that I think is really important and that we hear over and over again from our patients, even ones who are really savvy in terms of the policy and the science and really know what this is. There's still that component that I think is going to be a real important, I think, focus area for all of us over the next few years as we build out our own set of millions of patient days in the U.S.,
2: Absolutely. Colby, I want to give you a a chance to kind of build on what Anna just mentioned there and talk about how do you feel like your colleagues have taken in biosimilars, how that opinion maybe has evolved? What's that general framework looking
3: like? Well, I think it's very similar to what Anna described with patients. Doctors tend to be conservative about new treatments, especially when we have a treatment that is working and has been successful for the patient. The idea of switching to something else is something that takes a little bit of getting used to and getting comfortable with. And I think many doctors have exactly what Anna said. The patient is doing well on this drug. Why would I want to change them? Even if there's evidence that it probably will be fine, it can be a difficult thing. And so what you've seen is a split as doctors have become more educated about biosimilars, more willing to consider it, between patients who are already successfully on a reference drug, in which case I think there is still not a lot of appetite for changing them to a biosimilar, but then there are new patients who come in with psoriasis that need a biologic, and there, there is more comfort around using a biosimilar to start because that patient, of course, has not been on treatment already. And I think when physicians take into account, of course, the first thing they're gonna take into account is whether the drug works for the disease in question. The second thing is gonna be safety and the side effect profile. But then the third thing is the cost to the patient. Is the patient going to be able to get the drug at a reasonable out-of-pocket cost? And if they can't do that, either through their insurance or through a government plan, and unfortunately, cash pay is not an option for most people with biologics because they're so expensive, all of that comes into play when they're considering whether to use a biosimilar.
2: That is a perfect segue into our final discussion topic, which will be cost and access. And so lead us into this conversation. Let's start talking about those key topics surrounding biosimilars in the future. So through the summer, as we mentioned, up till August-ish, it felt like we had a new biosimilar coming to market almost every month. And I think what we've seen and what is clear is that there are, are misaligned incentives across the board when it comes to biosimilars. One of the key advantages, as we know, is cost savings. I think one thing that really caught my eye, and I know we've talked about this before, but. With some of the launches of the adalumumab biosimilars, biosimilar for Humira, we saw kind of a dual pricing strategy, where in some cases, the biosimilar was priced at 5% lower than Humira, and then also at 55% lower than Humira. And so logically, in, in my brain, it made sense that the 55%, right, would be selected to move forward, but that didn't always happen, right? Anna, so could you talk us through why that is, or maybe what some of these implications have been?
4: It's been really interesting to see these dual pricing strategies and just ways that companies are thinking about how they can actually gain market share with biosimilars because of the rebating system that we have here in the U.S. So it may seem intuitive that if you have a higher price and a lower price, that a healthcare payer or a health system is going to choose the lower price. But in fact, what we're seeing so far is that oftentimes it's the higher price. And the reason is because they're able to then extract a higher rebate, and it keeps the biosimilar competitive with the reference product. So that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to watch play out, I think, over the next year, especially in 2024, when we have biosimilars on the market for a full calendar year, which wasn't true this year, to see how the PBMs and the payers kind of shift their strategy, if at all. And I think it's going to require some pressure by patients and providers and others to try to make sure that it's those lower prices that really are able to break through.
2: And Anna, what you're referencing with the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, and the rebates are essentially, they are incentivized to pick a a higher price because then they're able to get more dollars back for their company, correct? Correct. Awesome. Colby, anything to add there?
3: We talked about Europe earlier, and we've seen in Europe where the government typically is paying for these medications or in siloed systems in the U.S., which is primarily Kaiser and the VA hospital system, the Veterans Affairs system, they have preferred, of course, the lower price because they are purchasing it directly. But as Anna alluded to, when you have a pharmacy benefit manager in the middle between the insurance company and the the patient or the pharmacy, they can extract a rebate in order to put this drug in a favorable place on a tier system of the insurance company. And so the more money is spent on the drug, the larger that rebate can be, you get what I would think of as a perverse incentive for the drug to actually cost more so that more of that rebate can be extracted. Thank you.
2: Anna. so I know I'm reiterating this, but if biosimilars cost less, then will individuals in our communities pay less?
4: Well, it depends. Not necessarily, unfortunately. And I think a lot of our patients are looking for a lower cost. If you're telling me that this drug costs less, then I expect my cost-sharing obligation to be less. And when patients bring that question up to us, we have to say, well, it's very specific to your health plan and your situation. I think the hope is that even if there's not a direct proportional cost savings to the patient themselves that the more biosimilars can gain traction in the market, it'll just diffuse the sort of high prices that we're seeing in the drug market overall and bring costs down for everyone. So a lot of people will talk about it in that way. It's cost savings to the system, which ultimately will benefit the patient. Whether that actually comes to pass and the patient does see relief, to me, very much remains to be seen.
2: Absolutely. And I think everyone is in agreement that they want the individual to pay less, right? I think every manufacturer company in this space would say the same thing. And this is where some of these, as Colby mentioned, perverse incentives can kind of get in the way. And so Colby, I know we've spoken briefly about this. I thought you had a really interesting analogy for sort of those incentives. I think that apply to whether it's an individual or a physician, And I was hoping you might be able to share that with
3: us. Sure, I think this incentive question is one of the key questions to the future of biosimilars. And the analogy I like to use is your car. So let's say you drive a Honda Accord, and I come to you and I say, Jason, I'm going to take your Honda Accord away, and I'm going to replace it with a Colby Accord similar model. And I've studied it intensely. I've made sure its performance is very similar to your Honda Accord. It drives at the same speed, has the same acceleration, gas mileage, safety profile, all is basically very similar to what you have. And you might say, well, I'm not that excited about getting something that's just the same as what I have now. So maybe is my payment going to be lower then? Is my uh, monthly car payment going to be lower? And you'd say, no, it's it's not. As Anna just described, your payment's not going to be any lower. You're just going to have a car, maybe from a company you've never heard of, but that we feel confident is pretty much the same as the one you have now. Well, you have absolutely no incentive to take that deal. Even if the system saves money in some obscure way, you don't see any advantage from it. And so patients and physicians, I think, are really in that position of if what I have is working and there is no direct benefit to me to changing from the patient perspective, then naturally, I'm going to have some suspicion about switching. Thank you. And
2: I'll be on the lookout for the Colby Honda Accord at some point for my travels. So I think the problems have been identified really well. And this is a topic that Congress is looking at. And I know we've been in meetings together. had conversations with folks about different proposals out there. What do you have your eye on? What should we be aware of as we think about the next year and a half, I'm going to say, because I'm not sure we have much chance of getting too much done quite yet.
4: There are a number of ways that various congressional committees are looking at biosimilars as part of this overall conversation around lowering costs and PBM reform. A handful that I would pull forward that are gaining traction either from the community or because they're bipartisan or what have you are The idea of deeming all biosimilars interchangeable, which effectively would just eliminate the pathway that companies have to go through now in order to receive interchangeability status through the FDA. The idea is that that would allow for automatic substitution of all biosimilars at the pharmacy counter rather than just those that have received this interchangeable designation. I Personally, don't think that that completely solves the problem because it doesn't get at that rebating issue. Because if that drug, even if you're interchangeable, if you don't have preferred status on the formulary, you're not available on formulary, the pharmacist isn't going to be able to make that substitution. So it's one maybe piece, but it doesn't solve the overall problem. Getting at that overall problem is something that we've been talking a lot about on the Hill. There's not necessarily a legislative solution that's out there at the moment. However, And at least one of the reform packages, there is a provision that would require from the transparency side, PBM or a payer to disclose if they require a utilization management protocol on the biosimilar that they do not require for the reference product. So that gets at an issue we're seeing right now, where oftentimes payers are requiring you to fail on Humira, the reference product, before you can access the biosimilar, which effectively shuts out the biosimilar from the market, because I don't think any doctor in the right mind is going to have you fail on a molecule and then put you on that essentially exact same molecule <laughs> afterwards so so that might shine a light on some of those practices and those perverse incentives that colby was talking about so that's another one i would watch for whether they get more sort of involved in actually dictating formulary tiering structures and things like that that have been under discussion as well but are a little bit more prescriptive than those two examples that i just gave it remains to be seen but those are some of the policies that are on the table at the moment
2: Thank you for that. Yeah, there's a lot there and there's a lot of interest in this topic for a lot of the reasons we've been discussing. I wanted to open this up briefly. Is there anything else you'd want to add as it relates to biosimilars, access to care, cost before we head to a wrap-up question?
3: I think we need to think hard about where these savings go. Whose pocket is the savings going into? So we mentioned Humira. The brand name right now is about $6,600 a month per patient. If we have that 55% savings we talked about, that would be $2,900 a month. So somewhere in the range of, of 36 dollars or $3,700 saved a month if, if those prices held up with that biosimilar. Who is getting that money? We've said it's not going to the patient. The patient's cost obligation is probably not going to change very much and in many cases is low right now. Uh, in the case of Medicare or Medicaid, maybe that goes back to the government, but for the majority of patients in the U.S. on private insurance, where is that money ending up? We talk about the system saving money, which sounds good, but I think we need to step beyond that and really understand who is getting that money, what are their incentives, and how is that controlling the decisions being made about what patients have access to? Well said. Anna, any final
4: I don't have anything major to add except that we really think kind of broadly about the potential biosimilars could have in being part of the conversation around making the healthcare system more patient friendly and hopefully bringing down costs and making access easier, whether it's through reduced levels of prior authorization, more streamlined step therapy protocols, and things like that. It's one of a broader set of reforms that are needed, but it's definitely something that we continue to remind policymakers should be part of the conversation. We don't want people to forget about it when they're having these other conversations in which biosimilars don't naturally are thought about as a potential solution. But there are definitely ways that I think every single stakeholder can help promote getting biosimilars and access more aligned.
2: Absolutely. And on behalf of NPF, I think biosimilars offer another good option for treatment of someone's disease, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, or, in your case, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. And we want all those options to be available to folks. And so thank you for an awesome discussion. I have one final question. You can pick from one of these two, depending on how you're feeling today. I'm an optimistic guy, so I did add in a more optimistic questions. So why are you optimistic about biosimilars moving forward? Or If you could solve one thing by this time next year, whether that's more education, a policy change, what might that be? We'll start with Anna.
4: Well, I'm going to be completely self-serving and say if there's one thing that we could solve, it would be that the recommendations that your organization and mine co-branded for various stakeholders. So we did one for payers and PBMs. For example, we did one for pharmacists with really tactical ways that they could communicate and educate patients in a very sort of patient-centered way that they would implement those and that no matter where you get your health coverage from, what your payer is or who your pharmacist is, they are all using these best practices that we've put a lot of time into developing based on patient insights that our two organizations. Have spent a lot of time gleaning and putting together.
3: Well said. Colby, bring us home. And I would follow up with what Anna said and her last answer transparency. I would want to see absolute and rigorous transparency in purchasing and brokering of biosimilars so that we would know, the patient would know, the physician would know, policymakers would know who is getting paid out of that. Purchase and are their incentives aligned with what's best for the patient? Right now, it's very hard to tell in many situations, and I think ultimately that's what we all want.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Colby and Anna, for being here, and we'll pass it back to Shiva.
1: Thank you, Jason, Colby, and Anna, for the latest information about biosimilars access and cost. For our listeners, if you'd like to continue to learn more about biosimilars, listen to episode 168 for an update with Juliana Reed. Executive Director of the Biosimilars Forum. You can also contact our Patient Navigation Center for more information by calling 800-723-9166 or by emailing education at psoriasis.org. And finally, thank you to our sponsors Sandoz and Boehringer Ingelheim for their support of this SoundBites episode.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of SoundBites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Soundbites on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Ghana, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage.